Alhamdulillah, thank you uh, all for coming today and thank you especially to Muhammad Suhail for agreeing to come and speak about his book. Just a bit about uh, Muhammad Suhail. Uh, Muhammad Suhail, Muhammad Yazid is a PhD candidate in history and the Prince of Wales student at Trinity College, University of Cambridge. He currently serves as a senior tutor at the Department of Malay Studies in the National University of Singapore. Previously, Suhail was a research associate at the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies, or IC's Yusuf Ishak Institute, and was the Institute's Tan Cheng Lok Master Scholar. He received his Bachelor of Arts with Honours, the highest distinction in history, and a Master of Arts in Malay Studies from NUS. A Singaporean historian, Suhail researches the broader history of decolonization in the Malay world, the Commonwealth of Nations, and the Global South. So, Alhamdulillah, thank you for making your way here today. Thank you, Ibrahim. It's my pleasure. To start with, can you tell me uh, what is the journey to producing this book? Um, this book started off um, as my master's thesis undertaken at the NUS Department of Malay Studies. How I came across such a topic, uh, it's really purely based on curiosity. I think as a student of Singaporean history, um, I mean, I've encountered like this particular office of Yang Dipetuan Negara several times. Um, if you take a look at uh, textbooks or history books about Singapore, especially during the era of decolonization, um, you can find this, uh, the traces of this particular office all over. But um, what I'm curious about, what made me um, so curious about the office is actually the title itself. Because it's such an alluring title, you know, Yang Di Pertuan Negara. And as uh, someone familiar or at least, you know, vaguely interested in the politics of Singapore, I believe, yeah, we, um, and I think some of the people here also do recognize the, the imprints of Malay political culture there. Because the title of Yang Di Pertuan uh, is used usually exclusively for Malay sovereigns, Raja, Sultans, and so on. And then it's such a curious construction. Um, in a in a country that is a republic today, you know, um, and then like the way it has been portrayed, it's always a precursor to the office of the Singaporean presidency. And I felt that um, we have lost like you know a particular story by simply just assuming this particular office into what we understand today as the institution of the Singaporean presidency, which of course has its own life today, you know, judging from the recent. Uh, presidential elections in Singapore. Uh, just for the benefit of uh, people who don't speak Malay, what is the literal meaning of Yang Di Pertuan Negara? So Yang Di Pertuan uh, means he who is made Lord. Something that is um, Di Pertuankan, you know, something that has been made sovereign. And Negara, I mean in the book I did mention at some length, like um, Negara it's also another curious construction. So in the book I sort of tried to show that um, the Yang Di Pertuan Negara at the end of the day is an invented title. You know, Yang Di Pertuan has historical imprints, but Negara is interesting. Once you put these words together, the title becomes a strange construction. Why? Because the term Negara is used to usually refer to the state, you know, in comparison to like the outskirt, Desa. So Negara and Negri used to be very similar, interchangeable. But after some time, Negara, especially during the era of decolonization in the 50s and in the 60s, it's used exclusively to refer to the modern nation-state, a sovereign independent state in the nation-state system after the Second World War. So if you put Yang Di Pertuan Negara together, and Negara together, it becomes like, you know, in a way I use the term uh, quasi-sovereign. It's, it's not really an uh, office for a sovereign, but it's made to look like that. 
Of course, contemporaneous with the title is the office of Yang Dipertuan Agong in Malaya. Because at that point of time, when the coinage of this term was being done, um, Malaya, of course, was also in its negotiations with the British, separate negotiations about um, the future shape of the constitutional state of uh, independent Malaya. And of course, they also invented a new title, which is the Yang Dipertuan Agong. So, the evidence shows that you know it's made to look deliberately similar to make Singapore in a way more Malayan. You know, um, if it's not sovereign, it can look like sovereign state of Malayan identity. You know, more than anything else. Constitutionally, of course, um, and I dwell quite at length in the book. It's actually the office of Queen's representative. When it was initially conceived, it was supposed to be a Malayan Governor General. Um, but I think the British was very worried that you know by giving Singapore like a local-born Governor General, uh, other countries, including Australia, New Zealand, Canada, you know the old dominions, would actually mistake this as like Singapore being independent. And they were worried, you know, and they were saying like, okay, New Zealand and Australia might be jealous of Singapore because now even colonies could get the titles of Governor General. So there was a lot of confusion there. In the end, um, the Chief Minister of Singapore at that time, who was uh, negotiating this, which was um, um, Chief Minister Lim Yew Hock, was very persistent that we should get a Malayan Governor General. Of course, the idea came during Marshall's time, the first Chief Minister, David Marshall. But Lim Yew Hock followed through with it and he was very he was very insistent. He said, okay, uh, you can have continuous jurisdiction over Singapore. You can make Singapore a perpetual colony. Fine, you know, control defense, foreign affairs. You have the power to suspend the constitution. But give us the Malayan governor general or at least a tutelar ceremonial figure at the top that looks, um, that, that, that's local born to replace the colonial governor, which of course has its own burden of coloniality, you know, the, the, the office of, the all-powerful colonial official. After that, um, after some negotiation, the, the British sort of you know, gave in a little because it was after Suez as well. They, there was a decline in global prestige of, of, of the British Empire. And they were okay with the new title simply because there's no constitutional precedent. So it's very it's ambiguous. Yeah. So these this kind of stories um, sort of um, animate the book in that sense and it got me very curious because I was really genuinely clueless about this particular office so as we dig deeper I found it like it's a useful entry point to a lot of untold stories about Singapore's constitutional heritage number one and of course about um, after the office was institutionalized and then you appoint someone to sort of fill that office we understand we can see how the office also operated more like a national symbol so once the office became a symbol and then there were a lot more contestations going on, like, you know, to what extent does it um, perpetuate the idea of hierarchy of class? To what extent does it perpetuate the hierarchy of race? What kind of symbolic projections did the office have? And, and because of that, um, how I approached the project is to study it both as a political project of decolonization and also as a cultural one. How do you represent the nation using one person? Like in representing this, uh, the nation or the nation of intent using this one person, uh, what kind of problems or what kind of incoherence is there? You know, what kind of tensions does it generate? And that's actually the direction of the book. It is quite interesting because we know the Merdeka period to be one where there's a lot of creativity and innovation, uh, certainly in the arts and in the film industry and all that. 
this is interesting that it's also in the political realm that there is this creativity and then creating things out of thin air yes um, <laughs> <laughs> the innovation yeah. uh, in order to negotiate this weird place that they were in uh, so maybe you can tell us more about this Merdeka uh, decolonization period uh, that Singapore went through uh. alright so um, it is it is very spectacular if we really look at and very very colourful when we talk about Ibrahim you're absolutely right to say that you know it's not just the the culture or the art scene but also it, it, in the political scene as well at least at that particular point of time um, the the buzzword or the, the, the main uh, ethos of most politicians and at least people who, who are active in the public sphere uh, it's, it's merger, merger with Malaya and, and because of decolonization there was a wellspring of different conceptions of what Singapore could be at that particular point of time because Malaya has always been there and Singapore after the constitutional separation of Singapore and Malaysia in 1946 after the war with Malaya becoming the Malayan Union and subsequently the Federation of Malaya uh, most Singaporeans still see themselves as Malayans first and foremost and the eventual reunification was inevitable or you know it's only a matter of time and there was that kind of desire to actually go back to Malaya of course in a political sphere it's a different issue um, altogether why? because uh, Malaysian politicians uh, were very very suspicious of Singapore because of the majority Chinese population when you incorporate Singapore into Malaya, what would happen? You know, the Malays will become the minority. So there was a different dynamic going on there. So Singapore is kind of stuck, I would say. Uh, what I used in the book, the term was uh, this kind of colonial limbo, a kind of purgatory area where it, it cannot become independent as part of Malaya. And it doesn't want to remain a complete colony um, under the British Empire. So Singapore is kind of stuck. But that doesn't mean that um, the people, ordinary people, artists, painters, um, they cannot imagine what, was, what it will be like to be an independent country or like what, would be, what, what possibilities did decolonization offer for them. And so it sort of generated a, an entire, like I would say, wave of, of, of how to reimagine like, uh, what Singapore could be. And at the point of time, it was Singapore could be Malaya. And, Ibrahim is right to say that you know we see the film industry, we see um, all the glitziness of um, of some state-sponsored attempts to sort of uh, project a Malayan culture. Um, the book actually started with the launch of the National Loyalty Week. You know, it was a deliberate attempt by the state to sort of manufacture the idea of a Malayan culture. But of course, I mean the idea of culture it's always um, very complex. You can't really manufacture culture without inviting any sort of controversy how can you manufacture a culture in which everyone would feel included you know it's more i would say you know, it's slightly iffy you know and and that's what interests me as well you know uh, this book what i did is also like to sort of feed the young people to Negara into this larger um, developments on like you know or experimentation that's the word the experimentation of what a malayan culture in singapore look like of course, when we think about Malayan culture and we look at Malaya, I think they have something else going on, where Malay culture is the dominant core of their Malayan culture. Whereas Singapore uh, has a different kind of strain uh, in which, like, you know, there's the idea of um, cosmopolitanism, there's the idea of um, accepting of difference, 
That's the idea of openness towards the world. So uh, the young Dipertuan Negara was an active component of this. You know, so he becomes sort of like a custodian or a patron of cultural initiatives to actually manufacture what being Malayan is like. And Ibrahim is right, like that. I call it the fever of being imaginative. Also, was I won't say it started with the politicians, but it was the politicians. They were fully aware of the existence of, of this initiative, and they they really wanted to sort of seize that initiative as well. They want to sort of define the parameters of what being Malayan was like. But one of the main arguments of the book is is the idea that actually in manufacturing culture, you know, it's not it cannot be a top down. Kind of approach, you know. Even if the government sort of say like, okay, Malayan culture looks like A, B, C, D, E, but that really doesn't mean much to people on the ground. You know, they have their own imagination of what being Malayan was like. So the book actually captures that kind of contestation where the government or the state under the PAP regime said like, you know, okay, Malayan should look like this. But then, like you know, the opposition parties, you know, people on the ground, be like, no, we have different ideas of how it looks like. So it's kind of messy. Maybe one could argue that you know that kind of messiness is beautiful in itself. You know, that kind. Of, I mean, the idea of culture, that kind of contestation, makes people more invested in the idea of you know this transcendental identity called the nation. But uh, yeah, the book uh, sort of um, tells that kind of story, and I had a very good uh, enriching experience researching that as well. How did the this office of the Yang Dipertuan Negara? Uh, how did it catalyze or how did it crystallize this movement towards independ- independence and defining this country as a nation uh, during that period? I think I mentioned um, that the office was constitutionally the office of Queen's representative. You know, the, whoever occupies this office, the representative of Queen Elizabeth II, the British monarch. Um, but the contestation happens when um, the British felt that uh, Singapore as a colony is not ready to have a local-born person to become a crown representative. There are other crown representatives throughout the entire Commonwealth at this point of time who are not really white. For instance, like you know, uh, actually most of them are white. Actually, yeah, at that point of time, in the white dominions and all that. So maybe um, the British were very worried that you know having a non-white person as crown representative in Singapore, which was still a colony is projecting the idea that Singapore was independent at that point of time. Of course, the Malayan leaders or the local leaders in Singapore, Lee Kuan Yew, Lim Yew Hock, uh, David Marshall, among others, they were very insistent to keep this particular idea because they were saying this kind of symbolic office is important for people of Singapore to sort of imagine and unite behind the idea of the um, decolonized nation state. And so this, this office has a very curious uh, it's a very curious institution in the sense that you know uh, it is a constitutional um, legal construction. At the same time, you know it's meant to sort of project kind of a symbolic message. At the same time, how does it um, really uh, affect Singapore's independence or Singapore's journey to decolonization? Well, I I think uh, it becomes a sort of a useful substitute in a way of Singapore being an independent nation state or at least an independent component of Malaya. Because Singapore was still a colony, and the British were very insistent on keeping Singapore as a colony, and that you know, and then there is the rhetoric of Singapore being too small and too vulnerable to survive, because it was vulnerable to communist infiltration and so on. So this was the I would say the consolation prize. So having the word I used was quasi sovereign or a pseudo monarch 
as the head of state sort of rallied the people together or at least that was what it was supposed to do it's supposed to rally people together and sort of help them imagine what Singapore could be as an independent nation state so in a way it is also a symbol of dignity that Singapore was not really a colony it was in strictly constitutional terms was a colony but we can pretend that it's not a colony in that sense so it gives people that kind of sense of dignity like you know yeah you know the governor is wearing something new now <laughs> Uh, he's no longer wearing that kind of pomp um, cock hat with white plumes. Now he's wearing a baju Melayu now. So it gives people the idea that, you know, hey, something is changing. Something is changing in Singapore. That's the, I would say, the imaginative cultural component of it. In the book, I dwell at length about the legal constitutional component of it. So by looking at it as a site of struggle, as a construction, we can see how the British tried to sort of impose a lot of restrictions on the young Dipetua Negara. Even though he was the crown representative, for instance, he cannot have access to the Queen. If you look at the Governor Generals in Australia or New Zealand, you know, as representative of the crown, they have direct access to the Queen. So whenever the people sort of submit petitions to them, they can actually submit it to the Queen. They have direct access to the Queen. Whereas the young Dipetua Negara did not have direct access to the Queen. In spite of the fact that he was appointed to be the representative of the Queen. What was the actual procedure? Well, if you have a grievance that you want to communicate to the Queen, you can give it to the Yang Dipetuan Negara, who will give it to the UK Commissioner in Singapore, who was still administering defence and external affairs, who will forward it to the Colonial Secretary, a member of the British Cabinet, who would think about whether he should give it to the Queen or not. So, so in terms of the hierarchy and the procedure, Singapore was still very much a colony. And then there were a lot of uh, nervousness about the idea of a local bond crown representative being able to pardon British criminals. Mm. You know, a white person, uh, let's say a British soldier, because the British were at this point of time still administering defence and external affairs. They were extremely worried about the idea of a local bond person being able to, or, or at least like a British criminal or a British soldier who has committed a crime, needing to go to a crown representative who was Asian and not white to ask for a pardon you know they were so worried about it they would say okay and then they really thought of legal restrictions they even thought like maybe we should have a clause in the constitution saying that British soldiers do not need to ask the Asian crown representative to be pardoned but in the end they managed to circumvent it by, by saying that where defence and external affairs fall exclusively under the jurisdiction of Britain and hence we do not really need to ask the young Dipetuan Negara for a pardon or anything. We should just forward it to the British Crown directly. Funny thing was that uh, even though that was the case, you know, the British have this the attitude or at least the official man has this very self-righteous uh, ethos. So they will say, but we will still out of respect tell the young Dipetuan Negara if we want to do executions in Singapore in the British barracks, we will inform the young Dipetuan Negara our courtesy because he was still the representative of the sovereign. But he cannot do anything, you know, in that, in that sense. So this kind of tension is what uh, I think the book tries to put forward. You know, the idea of Singapore, while having pretensions that it was somewhat sovereign or somewhat part of Malaya, in actual fact, in how the political system worked, it was still pretty much the same. The Yang Dipetuan Negara remained circumscribed. His powers are all, like, you know, contained. And Singapore was pretty much still a colony. Bear in mind, of course, the British in an instant can just suspend the constitution and just and sort of rule Singapore directly. So the Yang Dipetuan Negara is very interesting as well. Another, another interesting um, uh, anecdote is they were, the British were also very worried 
let's say uh, there's an emergency situation and they needed to declare an emergency. In those kinds of circumstances, while the British can suspend the constitution, in suspending the constitution, you can sort of dissolve the cabinet or at that point of time, the legislative assembly. But then you can't really dissolve the office of crown representative because he invested in this office the sovereign powers of the crown. So they were worried. What if when the UK commissioner declares a suspension of constitution, but then the Asian crown representative is still in office, what if the Asian crown representative suddenly say no? Or they become a sort of a check and balance with the British commissioner. You know, the buzzword today, right? Check and balance. So they were very nervous, you know. So what the British did was like, well, technically what they can do is this. Uh, if the Asian Crown representative, the Yang Dipertuan Negara, uh, refuses to cooperate with the British commissioner, uh, we can just get rid of him uh, because he is in the office at the pleasure of Her Majesty the Queen. And then we just put uh, the UK commissioner also as Yang Dipertuan Negara. So having both offices, he officially becomes British governor again in all his powers. So it is a very complex constitutional issue at that point of time and, and like the book does dwell at length at all these tensions, you know. I, I know you, 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 your focus is on the office uh, of Yan Betuan and all that, but uh, you can't ignore the charisma of uh, and how much he was loved. Uh, I'm talking about Yusuf Isha. Mm -hmm. um, and how his own personality and his own agency uh, played into the role or he came into his role. So what's your thoughts on that? I think I, I always had this problem upon starting this research project in a sense that, yeah. um, let, me, let me share it with you. Like when I, when I speak about my, my research topic, um, everyone thought I'm just doing another biography on Yusuf Isha, or at least Yusuf Isha during his time as Yang Dipertuan Negara. But uh, as one of my esteemed professors put it, it's not a biography of, the, uh, of, of Yusuf Isha, but it's more a biography of an office. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what the book is. Um, going at, you know, a history of an institution, which was the Yang Dipertuan Negara. Um, having said that, you know, if you are reading this book uh, with the idea of, uh, of reading a biography of Yusuf Isha, you may be disappointed, but you may, may not be too disappointed in the sense that in telling the story of the Yang Dipertuan Negara, I cannot not tell the story of Yusuf Isha at the same time. So what I did in this particular book is sort of weaving a little bit of the biographical aspects of Yusuf, what, uh, what he represented, uh, what was his beliefs at a particular point of time. So if, for instance, I mean, I'm arguing the counterfactual here, you know, you put someone else, you know, the book also talks about possible candidates. I mean, I can share more about that later, but like, imagine you put like someone else, you know, another person as Yang Dipertuan Negara, then the, the book will tell a very different story. But what this book does is that, okay, now that Yang Dipertuan Negara was appointed into this particular position, what are the implications? What are the repercussions? What are the symbolic generation of meaning that happened when you put such a, like what you said, Ibrahim, a charismatic figure, not unknown to the people of Singapore as Yang Dipertuan Negara. So the book does dwell at length, like, you know, what, what kind of messages, what kind of uh, uh, philosophy, life philosophies, did, did Yusuf Ishak uh, represent, at least at that particular point of time, uh, to the people of Singapore? What, uh, one problem that I dwell at length is also the idea of how Yusuf Ishak was remembered. Um, I think since SG50, there has been a lot of um, effort to sort of remember Yusuf and his contributions to Singapore. And that is all good. But at the same time, um, it's the job of the historian to sort of Trust panel in the works in, in that sense, you know. We whenever people sort of use 
someone did you know and try to venerate him you know it's the job of the historian to sort of say hey you know that's this is not totally accurate because memory is a different kind of thing you know memory is supposed to be used for certain projects but it's the job of the historian to say like well this di- didn't really happen or this was not really true Yusof Ishak contributed a lot to Singapore and no one can deny that in the office of Yang Dipertuan Negara and the office of presidency but upon, upon his appointment to the office of Yang Dipertuan Negara we only know so much about him at least the people of Singapore then only know very little about him so this book sort of uncovers like what was his life like because one of the things that one of the main qualifications that the PAP government did did the PAP government sort of churn out or uh, dispense is the idea of uh, Yusuf Ishak one of his greatest qualifications was that he was the editor in charge of the Utusan Melayu so what this book did is like saying okay using that what does it really mean? You know, uh, what did Yusuf do as editor of Utusan Melayu? And so this book really dig very deep, right? So what this book actually sort of exposes or sort of remind readers is that you know, Yusuf was a very active uh, collaborator with uh, Abdul Rahim Kajai, you know, the the person who coined you know, DKA and DKA, Dara Keturunan Arab and Dara Keturunan Keling, you know, um, the Utusan Melayu was this. Um, was this platform where you sort of churn out uh, a lot of very communalist ideas at that point of time. So when we sort of put Yusuf Isha as high, in the highest office in the land, what does it really mean? You know, uh, what he's supposed to be a symbol of the breakdown of racial barriers. And yet, you know, he got to where he was because of his idea of erecting these uh, racial barriers. And then of course, uh, the book talks about um, his uh, radical or his qualifications as an anti-colonial nationalist but uh, in doing so there were a lot of problems as well especially with his relationship with uh, A. Samad uh, Ismail uh, one of the, I think the greatest treasures of this book is that uh, I managed to uncover like a declassified special branch file on Yusuf about his radical uh, affiliations with the Malayan Communist Party you know, uh, please read the book if you'd like to find out more. But like, uh, it's one of those that like, eureka or like wow moments that historians can ever find. You know, to have a special branch from someone famous, and it, it sort of shows like you know the kind of networks, the kind of connections, the kind of engagement Yusuf had as a as a journalist of the Utusan Melayu. So yes, if you put anyone else in the office, you know, the book would have turned out very differently. But like, the book sort of questions also like you know. Uh, in putting someone like Yusuf there, what, what are the implications or what kind of symbolic generation was there? My argument in the book is that, you know, in, in peddling Yusuf as this uh, champion of multiracialism, champion of anti-colonialism, champion of equality, there are a lot of problems going on at the same time. There are a lot of ironies, there's a lot of interruptions, there's a lot of uh, semantic chaos, I would say the word. Yeah. And this book sort of plays with that kind of tension like you know who really was Yusuf as young Dipertuan Negara and so on yeah we, we always project into history uh, our own contemporary predicament yes, and, yes. And what we need him to be yes. uh, in order to explain today yeah, yeah. and his, uh, historically historians always spoil the fun you yeah. know in that, in that sense but that it's more interesting uh, to, to see that he's a complex person he has exactly. nuance, he has a lot of yeah I ended yeah. the book with the, with the point that in learning more about Yusuf's complexities or like you know while we celebrate him to become like you know the editor of Utusan Melayu yeah it's sure great you know that's wonderful 
But like in putting out all the unsavory aspects of who Yusof was, I thought the most important thing about Yusof is to understand him more as a human being. So the book humanizes him. It takes nothing away from his contribution uh, to Singapore. He was a esteemed statesman. That's wonderful, and we respect and we we cherish his legacy because of that. But I would say to be a representative of the people of Singapore, you need to be a people. You need to be a person, you know. And in a way, by understanding how Yusof was also a very ambitious man, a man with uh, with a lot of pride, a man with with his own, um, I would say, uh, ambitions towards power. You know, you 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 sort of understand like, well, Yusof was a human being at the end of the day. You know. He is fallible. He has weaknesses, and he has strengths as well. So, in that sense, it would make Yusof a very relatable person, actually. To be fair, uh, gone are the days where a newspaper editor can aspire to be president of Singapore. Yes, <laughs> yes, good old times, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be a multi-billionaire uh, CEO or something like that. Yeah, I mean, never say never, right? You know, yeah. I mean. Uh, People would never expect the office of Yang Dipertuan Negara at that point of time to actually become the elected presidency of today. Mm. So I do not, we do not know how the elected presidency will look like, you know, 50 years from now. Yeah, it's always evolving. Yeah, I always used to make the joke that you know, uh, to avoid all the politicization of the office of the ceremony head of state, maybe we should just be a, resurrect another office, maybe a Yang Dipertuan Singapura or something, you know, mm, mm. to sort of just cut out all the politics. You know, I did sort of, uh, sort of tease, learn the idea of like, what if. Um, there were other models at that point of time, you know, about what Singapore could be. What if um, Singapore remained a British dominion, you know? Um, then we would have King Charles as our head of state today. You know, we would not have. Uh, if Singapore became a, a British overseas territory, we would have British passports instead of um, Singaporean passports. Or at that point of time, uh, one uh, the one episode that this book also considered was uh, the Sultanate of Singapore. There was an active movement to actually uh, revive revive yeah. the Sultanate of Singapore. So imagine if that movement carried through, and we have a constitutional monarch where it'd be a Malay ruler who presides over government. You know, interesting models. You know, uh, they didn't you know follow through with that. But like, uh, at least at that point of time, you could have imagined the kind of possibilities Singapore's future are hanging on a thread. You know of all the possibilities that happened, the Sultanate of Singapore was a very interesting idea, which even the Tengku, which even the Tengku, as in Tengku Abdul Rahman, endorsed. Yeah, yeah, and of course the descendants of Sultan Hussein Shah put that put themselves forward. You know, like you know, we were willing to come back if you resurrect the Sultanate. Uh, there was no consensus among the Malays about who should be Sultan of Singapore. You know, is it the descendant of Hussein Shah? Or should we invite like someone from the ruling family of Johor, you know, one of the cousins or something to become like a new monarch here? No, these are actually very real possibilities, you know, and people toyed with that idea, people pushed. Maybe just on this Sultanate segment, there was a very interesting case where when the idea put forth, we would think that someone like Lee Kuan Yew will be the first person to say this is a stupid idea, this is unfair, this is against the PAP. But that didn't happen actually. He just said that, well, we already have negotiations. Um, we don't want to do renegotiations. So it's not killing the idea, but it's this very fine line of trying to flirt with that idea or like, or at least trying to communicate the idea that Yang Dipertuan Negara is sort of a substitute for the Sultan of Singapore. Hmm. Yeah, possibilities of history. Yeah. 
Yes, uh, exactly. If, if they so, take another road, completely Yeah, exactly. So history is not just about um, recovering the events that happen, but it's also about recovering events that happen in a context where there are other possible events as well. Yeah. I mean, there are different schools of thought of this, but at least for how I approach history is that when you talk about the past or you try to recon, or you try to construct event of the past, you must always put it in the perspective of like you know other possibilities happening because these possibilities are what actually uh, influence or at least uh, motivate the historical actors. Yeah, just imagining if the if they resurrected the position of the Sultan of Singapore, then Istana Kampung Glam would be, you know. <laughs> yeah, that could be the site of state <laughs> that, that, power. That would yeah. be the residence, uh, and uh, Kampung Glam itself would be yeah back yeah. to Kota Raja. Yeah. You know, then, then in one particular episode of the book, it's also like you know, we changed the the name of government house to the istana, istana negara Singapura. So I was thinking like you know, what what are the sort of symbolic connotations you know where we already have one istana here, one kota raja here, istana kampung glam, and then we put another istana not too far away from here. In the book, I sort of played with the idea that it's uh, in a way to contrast you know. The idea of a new, modern, young state, you know, uh, wishing to go forward from the relics of the colonial order, versus like you know a derelict, um, archaic uh, Malay sovereign, you know, in in Istana Kampung Glam. You know, it's it's this kind of meanings at that point of time that were spreading all over, you know. So when you think about the young Dipertuan Negara living in the Istana. It's hard not to, to imagine him as like a quasi sovereign of some sort. Very very interesting. Uh, just open up to any questions uh, anyone has uh, about the subject. I have two big questions. How was and why was Yusuf Ishak being chosen as the huh. young Dipatuan Negara uh, based on the book? Um, and the second question would be how has actually since independence, since 1965, young Dipatuan Negara transform to the current elected okay. Singapore presidency and looking at more to us young Dipertuan Angkor which we saw some political developments has been evolving for the past five years how has it changed from the original British construct to the current young Dipertuan Angkor okay thank you Yun Ho um, let me do let me sort of respond to the first question first uh, how was or uh, what was the process why, that was, yeah, why was he chosen Yes. And how was he chosen? What was yeah. So what was the decision-making yes, process yes. like? So in uh, June 1959, after the PAP came into power, what happened was that Lee Kuan Yew became Prime Minister. And as Prime Minister, you have the right to nominate a candidate. Uh, of course, the final discretion is up to the British. You know, the, the British can veto nominations. So at, at that point of time, at least what we have understood so far um, is that well, uh, Lee Kuan Yew went to Perak to find a retired Yusof planting orchids and asking him to become the Yang Dipertuan Negara. I would say that the decision is more complex than that because I, what happened, at least for me, what I, I, I believe is that, yes, Lee Kuan Yew went to Yusof in June 1959 to ask him to come back, not to as Yang Dipertuan Negara, but more to serve the public, uh, come back to Singapore in public service. So Yusuf was made chairman of the Public Service Commission. So there's this impression that, oh, okay, Yusuf was just being sort of groomed for the Yang Dipertuan Negara position because when the PAP came into power, the last colonial governor of Singapore held the office of Yang Dipertuan Negara on an interim basis for six months to stabilize things. 
and who should replace this the, the last colonial governor so so by making Yusuf Yusuf Ishak like PSC chairman the chairman of the public service commission it sort of softened the ground for his eventual rise to Yang Dipertuan Negara because this book demolished that this particular story why because at least the declassified colonial records show that Yusuf Ishak was more like to use the words of George Yeo a spare tire you know Yusuf was a spare tire for 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 Lee Kuan Yew because the colonial records show that Lee Kuan Yew actually actively searched for a member of Malayan royalty to fill up the office of Yang Dipertuan Negara that was his first choice he didn't want uh, Yusuf Ishak was the second choice a spare tire so what Lee Kuan Yew did was they, there was an active campaigning to go around and find a suitable Malayan royalty of the right caliber to actually occupy the office of Yang Dipertuan Negara in Singapore why did he do this? I mean, you don't need to me to tell you, but it's first to further merger, to sort of build connections with the ruling elites of Malaya, and secondly, to soften the PAP's Chinese-ness. Because PAP was trying to grapple with this problem that it was a radical Chinese chauvinist party. So by having a Malaya, by installing a Malayan royal as the head of state of Singapore, or at least serving the function of head of state of Singapore, it sort of uh, softened that PAP's uh, image of being this crazy radical Chinese communist infected party but Yuli Kuan Yu didn't succeed you know he tried you know so one possible candidate at the point of time was the, the Tengku's older brother Tengku Yaakob you know in Melanie Chu's biography of Yusuf Ishak Melanie Chu interviewed Rahim Ishak brother of Yusuf Ishak uh, who said that oh um, Tengku Tengku Abdul Rahman was the one who sort of orchestrated a secret plot to install Tengku Yaakob as Singapore's head of state I disagree with that uh, particular uh, account. Reason being, the official record show that the Tengku was very reluctant to actually be drawn into the, uh, the issue of nomination of which candidates to be Yang Dipertuan Negara. Because he was afraid that by being drawn into or by him nominating someone, he will be forced to actually take on Singapore in. And the Tengku didn't want Singapore because of the Chinese population and so on. So, I mean, he did accept Singapore later on as part of the Malaysia project, but that was a different time. That was a few years later. So, the Tengku was, didn't want anything to be involved. Lee Kuan Yew tried very hard to involve the Tengku in, but the Tengku said, no, 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 go away, avoid. He avoided Lee Kuan Yew um, just because of that. So, there was a movement to actually, some kind of initiative to find a suitable candidate of Malayan royalty to come over. But, you know, Lee Kuan Yew did not succeed. Because there were other names, so one, pos- one prominent Malay at that particular point of time was actually uh, Tengku Muda, which was the descendant of Sultan Hussein. But Tengku Muda, a few months earlier, was declared a bankrupt. Uh, as a result of that, uh, he will not, in a way, uh, he will not be respected uh, as the person who held the Yang Dipertuan Negara position. And there were other candidates as well, you know, um, Tun Razak, the Deputy Prime Minister of Malaya, suggested uh, Datuk Sulaiman Abdul Rahman who was a Malayan Minister of uh, Internal Affairs, who's about to retire, to put it, perhaps make him become like, you know, the Yang Dipertuan Negara. But Lee Kuan Yew didn't want the office of Yang Dipertuan Negara to become a retirement post for Malayan politicians. You know, so there was this kind of tensions like, okay, we want to be a dignified state, but at the same time, you know, uh, there must be someone suitable, you know. So in the end, he went with the spare tire, which was Yusuf Ishak. And then by picking Yusuf Ishak, of course, the, um, the PAP sort of, of course, emphasized Yusuf's credential. Journalists uh, from the Utusan Melayu, you know, um, he fought against the British, he was a very independent-minded person and so on. So the decision behind it was very complex. 
Actually, while this was Lee Kuan Yew's prerogative to fill, even before that, when Lim Yew Hock was chief minister, he also had other ideas about who should be in the in, in that office. There was even like a rumor, uh, at least recorded in the colonial of uh, office files, is uh, one rumor is that Lim Yew Hock himself wanted to become Yang Di Pertuan Negara, and he sort of made a deal with a secret deal with Lee Kuan Yew, saying that, well, I mean. I, if I don't fight the general elections of 1959 too hard and I lose power, you can make me become a young Dipertuan Negara. So he was motivated by that. Of course, Lee, Lim Yuhok denied that, uh, but at least this, this is what the records show, you know, that, that this, this is one possibility. So there were different ideas. The British also had, had their own candidates. The British wanted the, the, uh, the Speaker of Parliament, George, George Orleans, I think, for, uh, who was a Eurasian. But uh, of course, Lee Kuan Yew wanted a full, the quote they, they used was a full-blooded Malay. So I would say the Yusuf's primary qualification was not because he's some anti-colonial nationalist or because he was the Malayan journalist of Utusam Melayu. It was because he was Malay. You know, he was of the right colour, you know, um, uh, at least because of that. So that was a decision-making process. It's a bit more complex than that, so it's in the book as well. A lot of the interesting candidates were there. There was also um, the ex-deputy chief minister, Hamid Jumat, you know, but he was still an active politician and they were very reluctant to actually have like a political enemy to become Yang Dipertuan Negara. Because who knows, you know, Yang Dipertuan Negara might be a check and balance against the PAP government. We do, we, we do not know, you know, the people there were very concerned about this. Um, your second question was more about the Yang Dipertuan Agong and like, you know, How this kind of... Change, like, Okay, I am not really an expert on the Yang Dipertuan Agong. Uh, of course, like, uh, but I think like um, at least if you look at the uh, trajectory of Malayan uh, Malaysian political development, uh, the Yang Dipertuan Agong, that particular office, um, became uh, what it is. Uh, depending on the different historical context, it actually held a lot of different powers, different symbolic significance, and so on. So during Mahathir's time, for example, the Yang Dipertuan Agong was barely anything because they had a strong federal government under, under Mahathir. In fact, Mahathir sort of curtailed a lot of the Yang Dipertuan Agong's powers. He curtailed a lot of the powers of the Malay Sultanates in general. You know? um, but in recent years, of course, you can see how the Yang Dipertuan Agong became a very, uh, very important element in the Malaysian political landscape. And this is actually typical of, uh, they call it the Office of Parliamentary Heads of States. You know, some people may call it ceremonial heads of states, but they are, the, the real term that scholars use is parliamentary heads of states. In countries where they adhere to the Westminster style of government, where the head of state is separate from the head of government, the head of government usually being a prime minister. So the thing about the office of these parliamentary heads of states is that while they are supposed to seek, uh, sort of uh, serve the dignified aspects of power, so they do ceremonial stuff, like for example, they sign bills into law, they appoint key positions of the state, they have very little executive powers. They have some discretionary or veto powers. For instance, like um, if, the, if, a, uh, if a prime minister goes to the, to the head of state to ask for a dissolve of, uh, dissolution of, the parliament, of parliament or whatever, of course the, young, uh, the, the head of state can decide to actually say no for whatever reasons, or for instance, like uh, who to appoint as prime minister in the first place after a general election. We see that playing in full drama in Malaysia every time after election, or even not even during the election, especially when, you know, when people uh, jump, uh, hop in between parties. 
So you can see that the entire the, the scope of the powers, the discretionary powers of the parliamentary head of state being played out in Malaysia. So that's a different trajectory, a different institution at, um, that come to that state today. For the Yang Dipertuan Negara, uh, while constitutionally the office of the Singaporean presidency was built on that, um, at least during the historical context, it served a different purpose. You know, it didn't really have a lot of discretionary power. It did have some discretionary power. For example, like you know, it can uh, the Yang Dipertuan Negara can decide who should become the prime minister. That's the basic ones. You know, uh, the Yang Dipertuan Negara needed to sign bills with the law. The Yang Dipertuan Negara didn't have veto powers, unfortunately. But um, as, when we transitioned to a republic in 1965, okay, so this, this is the next logical, um, I would say, uh, follow-up for this particular book project because this book project stops in 1963, right before Singapore entered Malaysia. Reason being because I felt that Singapore, when Singapore was, when the island was part of Malaysia, it was a different context already. You know, the Yang Dipertuan Negara sort of didn't serve the idea of Singapore desiring to be part of, uh, of Malaya. It became something else. He became like sort of just um, the office of the head of state of a uh, negeri, of a particular constituent state, similar to the Yang Dipertua of Sabah, Sarawak. And the Yang Dipertua of, at that point of time, it wasn't Yang Dipertua yet, but it was the governor of Penang and Malacca. So you can see that it was a different uh, construction whatsoever. So the Singaporean presidency after Singapore's transition to a republic is also a different construction. Uh, I will follow it through, maybe, if I have the opportunity to, uh, for a further project on that. And of course, the Singaporean presidency it is one, has its own history, you know, after 65, and how did it transform to become the elected presidency? And how did the electric pre elected presidency uh, sort of transform over time as well, in terms of the criteria, in terms of, in terms of the caliber of candidates, in terms of the politics of the candidate? But what didn't change, of course, was the politics behind uh, these kind of offices. I mean, you don't need me to tell you that these kind of ceremonial offices are actually very politicized, in spite of the fact that it's not supposed to be politicized. I think the more you say that it's not politicized, it becomes even more politicized. So the same went for Yang Dipertuan Negara. You know, some people, they have been making arguments that, well, we should be, go back to the appointed presidency. It'll be less politicized. I question that, though. Like, at least in the point of the Yang Dipertuan Negara, what I've shown in the book, like, even though it's an appointed thing, there are a lot of politicking going on behind the scenes as well. You know, it's not as simple as it is. It's the, the crux here is the issue of government, the issue of power. And because of that, you know, it will always be politicized, you know, no matter how hard we try. Oh, thank you. Very, very interesting. Uh, any other questions before we uh, wrap it up? Did the um, governor, did he have reserve powers? Yes. So, In the uh, same sense as Australia uh, okay, that's a good, great question. So you asked whether the Yang Dipertuan Negara had like reserve powers. Um, I would say to be to be very straightforward, I don't think he had reserve powers similar to the Governor Generals in Australia or New Zealand, simply because um, his his wings got kind of clipped. Uh, but he does have some discretionary powers. For example, like I has mentioned earlier about who to appoint as Prime Minister after general election, uh, whether or not to dissolve the Assembly and so on. But in terms of the, the initiative to, for instance, suspend the constitution, it always has to be exercised uh, under advice of the British commissioner, who was still a very powerful figure, who administers Singapore's defence, external affairs, and presides over Singapore's internal security. Um, all these kind of reserves power lie in the office of British commissioner. So part of the why this office was particularly interesting is, is the idea that um, all these reserve powers 
is made to look like it's in the Yang Dipertuan Negara's hand. But it's not. It's actually with the UK Commissioner, you know, in terms of access to power. The Yang Dipertuan Negara was a figurehead, was a titular figure, he was ceremonial. But of course, ordinary people don't really know that, right? I would even make the argument that the politicians are not really too sure what the Yang Dipertuan Negara can do. But uh, at least in, from the perspective of the constitution, the Yang Dipertuan Negara had, very, had little to no reserve powers. Did, did Singapore pass uh, the Statute of Westminster? Oh, the Statute of Westminster, 1931? Yeah. yeah. So the, was, it, was it passed by the legislature here? No. To, to no, it, it wasn't. Um, why is that? Is it because they had no option or is it because they didn't want to? That, that is actually a fantastic question because um, Singapore wanted to be a dominion of Singapore yeah. actually. So Chief Minister David Marshall put forward this idea that Singapore should be a dominion. So they call it the Dominion Proposal. He got inspired by Nehru. Of course, at that point in time, India was already a republic. But like, he got inspired by Nehru to actually further the idea that Singapore should be a dominion of, the, of Great Britain, part of the Commonwealth. Uh, if, if that proposal did go through, possibly, yes, they will pass the Statute of Westminster. So the Statute of Westminster of 1931 was passed to sort of identify uh, the sign of scope of powers of the different dominions of the Commonwealth, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada, South Africa, and Ireland. But Singapore never became a dominion, uh, unfortunately. There are other Asian dominions at that particular point of time in 1956, or 1955-1956. They were Ceylon, Pakistan, and India. So I think if Singapore did go through the dominion proposal, it would be following the pattern of the South Asian ex-colonies. But in the book, I also did dwell at length, actually, because this book is actually a book about Commonwealth history, about why that didn't happen, because the idea of dominion, dominionhood as a mode of sovereignty sort of fell out of fashion after some time, at least in the early 50s, especially after Nehru declared to be an independent republic, uh, declared India to be a republic in 1949, but still remain in the Commonwealth. So the idea of remaining in the Commonwealth is po was possible, and you need not be a dominion to stay in the Commonwealth, you know. And so the idea of dominionhood sort of fell out of fashion. So the the term that came to be used was Commonwealth country instead. Yeah. So yeah, that 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 is uh, the 1931 Statute of Westminster was actually a fascinating uh, yeah. component. It was very generative to the ideas of what Singapore could be at that point of time. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Suhail, for sharing with, with us uh, about your book. And um, Alhamdulillah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, thank you all for being here. Thank you. Alhamdulillah.